0: is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. Church and Culture today, we're going to talk to Dr. Lee Oser about his new novel. It's his fourth, entitled Old Enemies, A Satire. Old Enemies, a Satire, from Cinex Press, which came out late last year. And I say that this is a very remarkable novel, very successful. And I'm even emboldened to say that sir is our new Walker Percy. So, Lee, welcome to Church and Culture.
1: Well, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to you, Bill, and especially grateful for those kind words. You couldn't ask for kinder.
0: I'm not trying to embarrass you, but I, as I finished the novel, uh, in fact, it was it was one of those novels that's very hard to put down, and I just thought, you know, you had done for me as a reader, what Walker Percy had done back in his day, and that is this very deep Catholic Christian humanistic critique of the culture, but with great humor, with a kind of uh, almost attachment, that I think a good novel and a good satire requires. Is that true? Well,
1: I oh, would just to go over to Walker Percy for a moment. The only, only novel I know at all well is The Goer. And uh, so I think of Binks, his character Binks Bowling. And I, I could say, yeah, I can connect uh, what Percy does with Binks Bowling to what I do with my narrator, uh, Moses Shea, because the narrator becomes uh, or occupies a kind of middle distance between the author and the world. So give you that distance on yourself. And I think Percy gets that in the movie Goer that sort of dry, observant quality that thinks bowling has. And uh uh and that's what Moses Shea brings to my novel. Lee,
0: well, of course, the last time a few times you're on we were on, we were discussing your book uh on Christian humanism and Shakespeare. And it, it, I just recall that in my Shakespeare class at the University of Texas, I had a, he must have been a very distinguished English scholar. And at some point, he was venting his frustration with, with American students. And I said, Doctor, what, what's the one thing missing? And he said, urbanity. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And I suppose what, what makes your novel so, so much fun, exciting, and probing to read is that, yes, it's a critique of the culture, but it's not arch, and it's not moralistic, and it's not ponderous and depressing. And it the characters seem quite real to me, you know, beginning with Moses Shea, but, you know, some of the other characters that you bring in and myself having taught in a Catholic university and other universities around the country, I just thought, you know, right on the money. And uh, at the very end, you you, you have, uh, I think it was Moses Shea commenting that you can only channel righteous indignation into a satire if you follow the form. You have to follow the form. Now, what exactly did you mean by that?
1: Well, the form is uh, something that brings a kind of um, external. How should I say? It brings a kind of external necessity to the book, to the writing of the book. That you know that you have a job to do. It's a little bit like if you're a carpenter and saying, "Okay, I'm going to make a chair or I'm going to make a table." And once you have a particular form in mind, then you have something objective in mind. And so I remember I was reading Humphrey Carpenter's book on the Inklings recently, a great book, and uh, Charles Williams was, among other things, a novelist, Charles Williams being one of the Inklings. And um, Elliot I think, was getting on Williams to come up with another novel, and uh, finally, Charles Williams wrote to say that I think I have the ghostly skeleton of a novel in mind. And I like that phrase, the ghostly skeleton of a novel. And I think that that approximates to the idea of form.
0: Well, you know, at certain points, you know, different writers popped into my mind, including Rabelais. <laughs> because yeah. you uh, you have, you know, a few moments of what we would call flow humor. And, uh, but that's not the dominant voice whatsoever. The dominant voice is one of a almost Erasmian, uh, even uh, St. Thomas More in Utopia. It's, it's a kind of, uh, detached probing insight into a world. At one point you called the world becoming infanticized, I believe it was. And I thought that was right on the money.
1: Yeah, I I picked up on that from my friend and mentor, Christopher Ricks, the the great English critic. Right. Uh, He's been worried about the infantilization of America, and especially what we see in higher education with, with all the ridiculous lengths and heights of sensitivity. It just is destroying the whole educational project uh so that is an infantilizing You treat young people like uh, like their children and sure enough they never grow up uh, you know to come back to a word that you used before which is urbanity and i was trying to wrap my own mind around that you know it's an interesting term i suspect it means different things to different people and um for me part of that is that you the joke is not only about other people; that the joke implicates you. So I think that's that's part of urbanity, you know, that you're you're uh, um, not just calling other people on their sins, but you recognize y- yourself for who you really are, and maybe that goes to Erasmus's emphasis on self-knowledge, on on knowing yourself as the who you are, and uh, so there, yes, with Erasmus and. The other side of urbanity, of course, the word is rooted in the Latin word for for city, is just a sense of civilization. And to connect that to Erasmus and what I do and that kind of comedy, uh, I think this is true of Rabelais as well, is that you're not going after individuals per se. You know, I mean, Nancy Pelosi drives me nuts, but I don't talk about her or... Ocasio Cortez or, you know, or no. Biden or, or Trump. I don't really talk about them. But what I talk about is the institutions, the very important institutions that are being run by mediocrities. So it's it's that mediocrity that I'm exposing and that becomes the job of the Erasmus, of the Dickens, of the Rabelais. That's what the writer can do is say, come on, live up to your own ideals and don't be a total hypocrite.
0: Well, you know, again, I want to say to the reader, look, this novel is entitled Old Enemies. It's a satire from Leo sir And I'm telling you, if you're a person, if you love Percy, if you love the Catholic novel, any of them, you need to read this book because it has taken, it's going to take a important place in that line that we all respect and love so much. And I, I know I'm I'm not trying to embarrass the author. I'm just saying he's written a very, very good book, which deserves a very wide audience, especially among uh, any of us who are interested in Catholic-slash-Christian literature. You know, the the person who frightened me the most because I'm all too familiar is the character Anne Fritz. I mean, because from from my first years, even as a graduate student, after after I got out of Princeton Theological Seminary and went to Emory and I started taking courses because I was an interdisciplinary Ph.D. So I took courses in the English department as well as philosophy, theology and so forth. And I had a teacher of modern English poetry who was Anne Fritz. She scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and I, I just felt she wanted me to die, you know, from the moment she set her eyes on me. So how did you come up with Anne Fritz?
1: Yeah, a lot of it is contemplating the phenomenon of, of people who are passive aggressive. And, and that's, you know, being an academic, that's a mode that unfortunately I've, I'm very familiar with. That's how people... Are aggressive, that's how they go, how they attack is through a kind of passive aggressiveness. So, whereas the kind of um, conversation that we like is, uh, has humor but can be mildly combative, there can be questions of logic. Men in particular will butt horns. Uh, some women are very good at butting horns too, great at it, in fact. So, that's a kind of out in the open, discussion and dialogue and debate that I think is healthy and good, robust. Uh, but what we see now is the kind of, um, with groups in the, in the academy who are sort of on the same side, they're aligned politically, they're on the same side, they're trying to ad- advance an ideological agenda that they can't be very blunt about. You know, it's like the, the Democrats can't say what they really want to do. Uh, and God knows that the Republicans can never figure out what they really want to do. But, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, but, but so you've got this kind of quasi Marxist ideological agenda. You don't want to be out in the open about it. So you set traps, you set verbal traps for your opponents, or you make, you express yourself kind of in code for your fellow travelers. So with Anne, uh, the trick to Anne is that. 98% of the time, she speaks in questions, which is always a little bit off-putting. You know, it, it throws off the conversation. And it's her way of controlling the conversation.
0: Right. You know, uh, going back to Walker Percy for just a second, if you ever get the chance and want to read two more of his novels, the character I think is cl- that is closest to your Moses Shea is a Dr. Thomas Moore. Who is the lead character of both uh, Love in the Ruins and Thanatos Syndrome? Okay. And uh, he's very close to your Moses Shea. But I want to go, I want to talk a little bit about Moses Shea because I don't want to give anything away in the way of spoilers. But it won't hurt to say that Moses Shea's father was a rather well known Catholic theologian, correct? Correct. And that Moses is. Catholic, although his behavior often doesn't rise to that level. But he's he's deeply Catholic, and he uh, is a journalist in New York City that has been blacklisted, uh, and he's ended up in a rather, how shall I put it, undistinguished reporting uh, position with an online uh how, do, trade you, how journal. do you put it? It's a, trade journal. Trade with, journal, trade but yes. with an overlay of sensationalism. Sure. And uh, his, the only woman he ever loved uh, married his best friend, Nick Carty, who ended up being a billionaire, and who shows up out of the blue to offer Moses Shea a job, and which he takes, and which then moves him to a, uh, defunct Catholic college in Massachusetts. Now I should mention, I forgot to mention that you yourself, Lee, uh, you teach religion and literature at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Right. So this is a setting that you're, you're very well acquainted with. And, you know, I know Holy Cross is a you know, a thriving institution, but there must be a number of, Catholic colleges up there that uh, have been closed? Am I correct?
1: Yeah, um, there's a, a list of them on Wikipedia. Uh, American colleges, I think it's in the 20, 25 or so that have closed or have lost their uh, Catholic identity. Recently, the, um, there's a there's a, nat- a school, a nativity school in town, in Worcester and the bishop revoked its Catholic identity. That's not reflected in my novel in any way, but this is an ongoing uh, conversation among some uh, bishops and some in the uh, hierarchy. What is the status of these uh, Catholic, reputedly Catholic institutions, and what can be done? As you know, the controversy goes back uh, very solidly to the days of J.P. 2 when uh, he asked for some kind of agreement along the lines of theology, you know more about that than I do, and he was not very lucky. Very, he was he was not very successful in getting um, uh, what is it from the heart of the church? Church was it a square ecclesiae? He was not very successful in getting the theologians on board, and I think that was kind of an uh, an opportunity lost just in terms of. A fruitful dialogue, you know. So we didn't really get a fruitful dialogue about it. We got out of it. We have some institutions that are quite proudly loyal and faithful to the magisterium, and others who are uh, quite proudly disloyal, and uh, and that's not really in the common good in the long run. So I'm sorry that didn't go better. So yeah, that's. That, I mean, I'm very. I have nothing but praise for Holy Holy Cross, of course, where I work, the Jesuit institution. But that is an ongoing concern, and it's a conversation we have at Holy Cross, which is what is the Catholic nature of the school, and uh, we have our first Jesuit president, in fact, uh, Vince Joe and he is—he cares about that. You know, he's a good Catholic man, very well educated, and we'll see how the years go. I do think the culture recognizes, society recognizes in general that. Our, we, we've spent our moral capital. We've eaten our moral seed corn. We've carried on as hysterically as possible. That uh, the game of, of, of the atomization of society and everybody's rights for to do everything has has hit the limit, and uh, uh, and we've got to come back to some kind of consensus about reality and our respect for our great faith traditions. You know uh, that brilliant guy over at First Things, Rusty Reno, talks about the return of the strong guides. I admire Reno a great deal. I'm not sure that I would put it that way. As a Christian humanist, I, I want to assert the, uh, what we have, the strengths we have, which is a great, great intellectual tradition, common sense, uh, historical consciousness, and just bring these goods forward into the, uh, uh public square in a pluralistic but competitive way. So, uh, but you know, things have gotten so chaotic. That uh, it's hard to say. You know, uh, Rusty might be exactly right, and that uh, we, we may be headed in, in a theocratic and integralist direction. That's not what I want, and I'm not sure that that's exactly what Rusty wants. But uh, certainly, things have gotten rather frayed, and they need to uh, they need to improve rapidly.
0: Well, I think predictions of that sort are easy to make, and in my experience as a Catholic writer, journalist, professor defender of the faith and so forth these kind of predictions just they usually fall apart pretty quickly and uh, it's uh, the fact is that uh, it's not in our hands Lee you know and the fact is that uh, these forces that were let loose for example by the Land of Lakes declaration right. you yeah. know led by Ted Hasberg and former uh, Cardinal McCarrick at the time was head of the uh, University of Haiti, as well as being bishop down there, uh, man, they made a deliberate decision to eschew Catholic identity. Crosses came off the walls of the colleges. You know all this. Some of our listeners may not know this. But they stated that they wanted to compete uh, with the secular schools, Harvard, Yale, Yale, the Ivy League, the, you know, the great state universities, that they wanted to be seen equal to them. And so they went out and started hiring all these people with, with no regard whatsoever, their respect for the church, its traditions, and uh, and bingo. You know, you've got, you have competed, you have perhaps risen to the level of these, some of these schools, but at the cost of Catholic identity. And I, I think your novel Old enemies uh, is so poignant because you you have one character who is an old older woman who uh, Moses Shea discovers with a uh, one of those things you carry around a metal detector, right? And she's out there in the uh, in the cold evening among the leaves trying to find. Is it her son's rosary or her husband's? I forget.
1: It's a, it's a medal. I think it's a St. Anthony medal that had uh, been in the family for
0: some time. Yes, it was a and family St. Anthony she, medal. Yeah. And uh, trying to find that, right. And the, <laughs> the, camp, the, the campus police, that is, the campus is now owned by uh, Nick Carty's company. Uh, she, this lady is a virulent anti-Catholic and wants to put this put this poor woman uh, <laughs> in the clink, I think. And uh, Moses defends her, as does Moses' f- friend, uh, the chauffeur of Nick Hardy. What was his name? I can't recall. I know who you mean, that's for sure. It's Mike, Mike Mann. But he, uh, is ex, uh, I think New York City police and he packs heat and successfully runs the, uh, the, the campus police, anti-Catholic policewoman away. And. Yeah, it's Manny. Manny is his name. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's so poignant because that, the image of that woman searching for this family heirloom, which is a Catholic heirloom, and being chased around. Uh, by this, uh, you know, this newly installed uh, police authority there is so poignant as well as the two uh, professors, retired professors, I believe who were, who were basketball partners back in, I believe the fifties who, who sneak around campus and she's chasing them. And, uh, so you have this, it, It's there is a great comic element uh, throughout this novel, Well,
1: Well, um, I really agree with something you said before, and that is it's not in our hands. Uh, and for me, the, uh, the humor, as I say, uh, a tagline in the novel is, uh, 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 that isn't funny. But it's funny whether you like it or not. That isn't funny, and that's the situation we're in. Uh, it's it's uh, you want to make me laugh. I uh, want to make God laugh. Tell him what your plans are. Like that's the you want to make God laugh. Tell right. him what your plans are. That's the the cosmic joke being the human being, and uh, and I think there's something urbane about that too. Um, and in, just in terms of that slapstick element in the novel, yeah, uh, the whole idea of old enemies comes from Chesterton. Comes from uh, uh, a work of his called *The Everlasting Man*, where he talks about the old battles between Carthage and Carthage's uh, practice of child sacrifice, and uh, the, the Carthaginian wars, there, the Punic Wars with Rome, and uh, uh, Rome's final defeat of, uh, of, of Hannibal and these great Carthaginian generals. But the Carthaginian had a civilization that kind of runs parallel to our abortion culture. Where, for the sake of commercial prosperity, they sacrificed all of these uh, these, these babies, and it is quite an interesting point because for a long time, the progressive archaeologists wanted to take issue with this point, and they did not want to admit that that Carthage was practicing this barbarity. But uh, the recent evidence and the recent work has shown that Chesterton had it right. So you just have a sense of Chesterton's uh, 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 everlasting man and the battle between the old enemies of Carthage. And Rome, and Rome of course I connect to uh, the Roman church and Nick Carty's company is called the Carthage Corporation, so that's where that comes from. It makes for some slapstick humor at times because we've been doing we've been having this recurring battle for centuries. So we're we'll just revisiting it again.
0: Well one of, Lee, one of the funniest tour de forces in your book is on pages eighty to eighty two. Where, uh, you're, it's being described a, the demonstration on campus before the campus was closed of a group defending the chapel and the, there's a, a group trying to go in and, and destroy it the way that several dormitories have been destroyed. And you write that, uh, with multiple dormitories going up in flames, the president of St. Malachy College arrived on the scene. In her left hand, she held a megaphone. In her right hand, she gripped a mysterious object and pointed it at the noses of the chapel's defenders. Now, I'm only going to read part of this, but you'll get the idea. Some said it was a cigar. Others, a flute. Some, a banana. Others, a fig. Some, a wedge. Others, a steak. some Some, a pike. Spike. Others a prong, some a ruler, others a dagger, some a ferrule, others a pointer, some a fly swatter, others a spatula, some a crayon. Now this goes on for another page and a half. And it, I'm just sitting there rolling with laughter, uh, because the, you know, these campus demonstrations and all the different versions of what happened and you know, all from the perspective of uh the entrenched radicals to the entrenched conservatives. This explosion of various perceptions is exactly what happens, Lee.
1: Yeah, I felt pretty good about this. Thank you, sir. Um I think Robleg was the inspiration. He has some hilarious catalogs. And yeah, it's a catalog. uh, so- yeah, so I just took it from from Rabelais, and it's as you say, it's a, the breakdown of truth into you know the game of hermeneutics. So I'll just finish that one little bit. Um, so some a totem, others an idol; some a scepter, others a rod; some an Oscar, others an Emmy; some Cersei's wand, other Moses' staff; some a 6.5 millimeter Manuka Carcano cartridge, others a booster shot; some Pinocchio's nose. Others a satirist's head, some a lightsaber, others Gordier Briscoe's torpedo fish, some a golden bow, others a vial of dreams, some a diploma, others nothing.
0: Hold on. My personally, Lee? Yeah. Hold on.
1: Yeah.
0: I take a break. All I'm right. Come back with, with that
1: passage because I do want to say something about it.
0: Okay. When we come back, we'll talk more about this catalog, this beautifully poetic but powerful and satirical passage in your novel old enemies. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm with Lee Oser, Professor of Religion and Literature at the College of Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. And you may recall he was on this show a number of times discussing Shakespeare. In specific, his book on Christian Humanism and Shakespeare, a study in religion and literature. But he's now written his fourth novel entitled Old Enemies, a Satire. From Sin Express, which I, I strongly, strongly recommend if you love the Catholic novel. And uh, we were talking about a very unusual few pages in his book where he delivers, as he called it, a catalog of what people thought was in the hand of the president of Malachi College. Her name is President Uduor White White. <laughs> Tell us a little more about this passage, Lee.
1: Well, so the passage, it's a big, long catalog. And that's a technique I borrowed from the great French, uh, humorist, Christian humanist, Rabelais, Francois Rabelais. And uh, it it grows more and more fantastic towards the end. Uh, And so I'll just read it as it approaches the end. Right. Uh, And then the, the narrator kind of comments on it. So, I had mentioned the 6.5-millimeter uh cartano cartridge, which is a JFK reference. I'm sure many readers know that. Uh, others are a booster shot, some Pinocchio's nose, others a satirist head, some a lightsaber, others a Gordio Bresca's torpedo fish, some a golden bow. others a vial of dreams, some a diploma, others nothing. My personal theory is that these accounts are all true, quite true, but true on a hermeneutic level unlike the miracle of the Son of Fatima, which I have always taken literally. So I suppose there's something of the uh, Tower of Babel uh, in, in that, you know, just the breakdown not only of the Logos into different languages, but the breakdown into the of truth, our modern version, the breakdown of truth into versions of the truth and individual impressions of the truth. And that is, of course, a sign and symptom of our political situation as well pay attention to what the language is doing. So I'll just read uh, a a tiny little bit more after that, just another minute's worth. So I finish with the reference to the miracle of the sun at Fatima, which I have always taken literally, literally being the key word there. And it goes on. Uh, Her name was President Eudora White White, and she denounced the men as fascists. She decried their patriarchal logic. She condemned their toxic masculinity. She demanded they check their privilege. She said she didn't mean counter-argument. She lectured this crew of war-torn, working stiffs about the overriding importance of wealthy women who had enjoyed every benefit afforded by an advanced and tolerant society, that is, the society the men before her had defended to the hills, in order to be celebrated and professionally pampered because of historical injustices that were cynically exploited by beneficiaries of the system like herself. President White wiped the dress from her lecture to bust a few moves to The Power by Snap, which blasted from a nearby loudspeaker. She went on to advance a number of strategic initiatives and to say she was very optimistic about the future, as well as to solicit donations for a new $30 million mental health facility <laughs> intended to unite the campus. Then she commanded the men to do the right thing by shutting up and getting out of the way. <laughs> Last little paragraph.
0: When the rioters
1: is- rushed the hill, intent on topping the statue and burning the chapel to the ground, the 300 old guys endured cuts, bruises, and one or two heart attacks, but they held out until some local skunks, provoked by the ungodly racket, posed down the belligerents with a fine artisanal spray. Skunks are basically peaceful animals.
0: You know, that uh, I, I sense that a lot of hardened soul of yours went into writing this book because. And in, in, not a, uh, in any way awkward way, it fits right into your story. I mean, it touches upon some of your favorite writers, uh, some of, and more importantly on some of the basic principles of human life and human morality that, uh, that we as Christian and Catholics believe in it's all right here. And well, but you know, one thing that I didn't quite understand, and I'll I'll, is the character who is the Russian spy. Now, what I mean to say is, I found the character very interesting. She shows up as Moses Shea's cleaning lady of the rooms he's given to stay in, and she is attractive. And comes on to Moses Shea, She's trying to seduce him into some sort of almost master-slave relationship. But uh, why did you include her? Lane?
1: Well, I, again, this problem of spoilers. I don't want to give away too no, much. No, don't. No, don't do that. But so you've got this place where Moses is working, which is uh, the Cardiff Corporation. They've got a magnificent computer called Hannibal, which is uh, um, generating uh, um, software, marketing software, that has this unusual success in, in creating markets and developing markets. So this is a very valuable computer and very valuable software and uh, very, very valuable programming that's going on. And uh, they're, they're spies, they're industrial spies or state actors, in fact, who want to get their hand on our technology, which is so often the case. I mean, we are continually raided by our our, our friends and enemies for our technology. And uh, in in this novel, there is a a Chinese uh, actor, a Chinese spy, and there's a Russian spy. And so that's that's her purpose, is in part to, to remind us that you know, you want the United States to work. The United States represents our common good. You keep tearing it down. You're just going to give things away to people who want to hurt us. And the other side of her name is Tatiana. The other side of Tatiana that I can talk about, without giving too much away, is that she's sensitive that our pluralism and our diversity, which can be great, you know, can be wonderful sides of the American experiment. But she's very sensitive to how that can work against us. And uh, and she makes that clear to Moses. Is, is that it's tearing us to pieces right now? And I I connect that to the DEI stuff, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of that, uh, which is the kind of identity politics on steroids, where we're we're just balkanizing our our American society into these little competing tribes. And what more could a foreign power ask for? You know what what greater Propaganda success could Russia or China have? Then, then to yeah. turn Americans against themselves. So Tatiana helps me to kind of realize that. You
0: know, another a scene that really struck me is that sort of two thirds through the book, Moses Shea, who's getting paid quite well to work uh, for Carthage, and for his buddy Nick Hardy, gets a note about. Uh, becoming head book review editor at the Times-Times in New York City, the New York Times, we, and he, his job would be the most influential book review position in the United States. But when he tries to get into the building, which I assume is on 5th or 6th Avenue, and tell the readers what happens. I, I, this really did get my attention.
1: Well, you want me to read a little bit of it? Yeah, sure. All right, I'll go over there to that section of the book.
0: I mean, he, it, uh, it's, he, it's really, its I wonder if it's prophetic.
1: Yeah, it, that was, it was a bit inspired by um, Spencer, of all people, because he writes allegory. And I, so I, I kind of slipped into an allegorical mode right. for this. I refer to Edmund Spencer, the Elizabethan poet, the author of The Fairy Queen, he, who was beloved to C.S. Lewis? Lewis was a great Spencer reader. So, okay, we go into the building. I called the New York Times, the Times Times, and so we're in Manhattan, over there on the West Side, uh, in the town. and uh, and here's him encountering the Times Times building and going inside for his job interview. The iconic sign in the front of the Times Times building continued to greet New Yorkers with the paper's famous motto, You are living in the Times Times. I hadn't been inside the place for over a year. The moment I entered, a woman with her third eye tattooed on her forehead demanded the purpose of my visit. She was elaborately dressed for a security guard. Her gray uniform flashed and sparkled along the thick line with gold buttons of various sizes which were in signs with a zodiac of emblems, yonis, navels, caterpillars, mushrooms, worms, planets, comets, flowers. Before I could make sense of this arrangement, she directed me to a second guard, who sat behind a desk and demanded the deed to my house. But I have an appointment. He still need to make a statement. This guard had a very youthful appearance. She seemed almost a child, but she presided over her desk with elaborate authority. Instead of fancy buttons, she wore golden epaulets displaying a plus sign on one and a minus sign on the other. Recognizing the stunned expression of a dystopian tourist, she pointed to a poster on the wall. The admittance of visitors will be based on their expressed commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have nothing to say. Just say the first word that pops into your head. She held up a set of flashcards. Race. Olympics. Pointness. Paper. Space, time, gender, biology, intersectional, crosswalk, systemic, circulatory, representation, mimesis, the United States, home. Please stand over there, she said, her ruby red fingernail directing me to a cube. I traversed the floor to a desk that was bare except for two things, a picket machine that dispensed strips of duct tape, and a screen where an instructional video kept repeating. The video was directing me to place a piece of duct tape over my mouth while, from across the building, I heard a distant rumbling sound like the coming round of the band of the big boy's steam engine. I was doing my best with the tape and the boa constrictions of a panic attack became imperative. Then, as I was wrestling with the snake on my ribcage, a third guard loomed up before me, an eclipse in jackboots, wide as a tank and tall as a missile. It took time to process the full picture, but the snake on my ribcage seemed in a frightening vision to be transferred to her hair. The other two guards were gazing at me, and I thought I saw snakes in their hair as well. More immediately concerning, though, was the complete absence of, of cloth or covering for the colossal crotch before me. I looked once in ducked for fear my little head would be chewed and devoured by unimaginable teeth. I'm here to escort you to the elevator, the third guard explained in a surprisingly civil tone of voice. 10th floor. If you need to use the restroom, try to film. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Oh, thank you. No, keep keep reading. Keep reading. Oh, okay. So, let me see. Give me just a second. He gets on the elevator, then, where the men are coming off. The men and women are are coming off uh, uh, the sort of the spy community, the Brennans, who have absolutely hurt this country beyond belief. And the rest of their ilk are coming out of the Times Times doing their little visit there, so just right where I was. Uh, I comprehended by now that up and down the side of the and pad lakes, sharp gold spikes bristled in robes. She escorted me to the nearest elevator, and more than once I swerved to avoid her driving forearm, which was cranking like a piston by my ear. In the elevator bay, she inched closer. Not a moment too soon, a bell rang, the door opened. Inside the elevator car stood an assembly of persons in bug-colored topcoats, motionless as photographs in the montage, except for an occasional twitch here and there like a crack in the dimension of space. A criminal hardness froze their faces, and if you look closely, you can see their eyes ticking back and forth. I recognized some of them. I'd seen them lying carefully on Capitol Hill and lying brazenly on news shows, but others had their hats pulled down low over their eyes. As I disembarked, I slipped in behind. A recorded voice chimed in dulcet tones. You are living in the prime times." In you
0: the know, of the having... Uh, Lee, I lived in the New York City area for over five years, and your line, A Criminal Hardness, froze their faces. Yeah. I saw that all the time as I walked the streets of New York and uh, any outer boroughs. And as a Texan, and part-time Southerner. I suffer from the fact of this total lack of eye contact and smiles and and common greetings. I mean, it re- I really suffered.
1: Uh, that's about the rest of it, isn't, isn't it? Uh, you're just so isolated in the middle of a mob, and that's the way uh, New York can be. Of course, there are wonderful things about New
0: York. Yeah, I mean, one time I, I had gone to see the new Henry VIII with Kenneth Branagh. There's a wonderful little art theater down, I think on 10th, 10th street in the village. And I was so moved by the movie that, I mean, I was out in the street. I think I might have been tearing up, but anyway, I dropped my wallet. I dropped my wallet. I didn't know it. And I drove all the way back to Mount Vernon to my house and got a call. Somebody found my wallet lying on the street in New York City.
1: It happens. You there's just never know. There.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, there's, it's there's hard to generalize.
1: The, the whole so much of modernity, though, is I think uh, captured by the, the by the experience you described. just being in the middle of a mob uh, of a great mass of people and being alone, being completely isolated, or sort of just watching. Out of the corner of your eyes, at people whom you don't know, who go go by just sort of one cipher after another, and in it, a while, it, if you don't have a, a purpose to your own steps, that just watching, people watching, gets just drains you of, of life. You know, it's it, it's it's more than anyone really uh, can take. So um,
0: you know, and you, it's you describe thing you yep. describe a moment on the subway in a very similar way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know I lived in New York for, for a while. It's still my favorite city, and I know the good and the bad of it. As I say, the best thing to, to if you go to New York, you have to have a plan. You just don't want to give yourself too much time standing around drifting around like a minnow in the tide, because you, you know you, you just lose your way.
0: Having a that's, very, that's the best advice I've ever heard about going to New York. You also have this excellent character because. Shay is his job alongside Ann Fitz is to advise and assist six young geniuses who are there to work on marketing and advertising logarithms uh, and I, I suppose memes sure. to sell various products that Carthage is offering. But one of them is different, it's Osgood. And I found that, a very important aspect of your novel in the sense that here was one character that was, you know, his humanity was immediately evident, and he connected, it turns out, to Moses Shea through their shared faith. Did What inspired you to include Osgood?
1: Well... It, writing a bad group of young people is challenging because I like young people. I always care about them. And, uh you know, I feel responsible for them. As a teacher, as a parent, my daughters are, uh, are, are 19 and 24, and I know so many of their friends. They, they come here, and I, I have them for dinner and put them up overnight and have you know, many, many students, 57, coming up this term. And uh, you don't want to... Um, you know, you run the risk of just becoming sort of put off by a generation because there they are with their phones all the time. And, uh, and they're not particularly well read anymore. And uh, my friend Mark Bowerline has a really, really good book, two books on this The Dumbest Generation and The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. And people think of Mark as a hardliner. He's actually a very literary, sensitive guy. Um, But you know the facts are are galling and really worrisome. The uh, the decline in literacy, the kind of crudeness of expression that you hear all the time, and yet these a lot of these kids have great minds. You know, if if you can just get them going in the right direction, they respond well. And they're you know like all young people, they're funny. Um, Many of them can take take a joke or take criticism. And so I did not want to write off the younger generation. And yet I do fear that many of these young kids have been brainwashed by the mainstream, uh, and we know how our mainstream uh, media political complex works these days. Those who sign up for the 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 particular agenda of diversity, equity, inclusion, or the particular agenda of of climate control, those are the ones who are going to advance in the uh, progressive ranks, and so, in the sense, the more robot-like and more sheep-like you become, the more you progress. And now, uh, um, being a, a, a Catholic kid, um, has a bit more individuality. He's learned to see things a bit more against the grain. Uh, uh, but I try not to overdo that element. I try to recognize what is charming and winning in young people. And and I, I can honestly say that in, in writing them, I liked, I liked all of them. And... You know, given a chance when they're not being controlled and told what to say and what to think, you and Mao is not that kind of way guy. Mao will not do excuse me, um, Moses is not that kind of guy. Even if he's mentoring these kids, he's not gonna tell them what to think. When they get a chance on their own to expand and exchange ideas, they're good at it and they flourish. So I, I wanted to uh, to write a, a young a young crowd to do a decent job presenting this new generation, Generation Z, and my daughter, Generation Z. My older daughter was born in 98. And, um, uh, uh and, and give them a chance. And now was, uh, had a little bit more opportunity because he, having a Catholic perspective, he was a little bit more skeptical. About the sort of propagandistic uh, aspects of our of our way of life these days, and those are you know we have to be very wary about the media and about what the government tells us.
0: Well, you know, I don't want to do any spoilers. We really haven't done any yet. We're just trying to lay out the general outline of the book and some of the major characters. And so there you know, certain questions and comments I'd like to make that I'm not going to make because I want our listeners to buy this novel entitled Old Enemies, a Satire by Lee Oser, uh, Cynics Press, although it's available S-E-N-E-X. on all the.
1: S E N E X. So it's yeah. not cynical. It's Cynics as the old man in the, the Latin.
0: Cynics. Okay. Well, that doesn't fit you, does it?
1: Oh, come on now. We have
0: 65 <laughs> in April. <laughs> well, we can always pretend, Lee. You know what I mean. Uh, so, tell us a little. When did you write your first novel? And uh, tell us, because it seems to me this is this is the product of someone who's really worked at the art of novel writing.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Um, I think there's truth to that. I think that this fourth novel is uh, others people whom I trust have said it's my best. Um, and you know you, you, you want to get better, you want to learn the craft and there are, there are different layers to the craft as you as you develop as a writer. and you get more critical distance from what you do. As I tell my writing students, the first trick if you're writing is try to figure out how your reader is going to take your sentence, your paragraph, whatever it is you're doing. how is someone not you going to read it and understand it? Um, So you you get pretty good at that. If you you write a number of novels, you get pretty good at getting out of your own head and imagining other people's response. Um, And just, you know, to go back in my own uh, uh, my own story is um, the first book is is called Out of Chaos, and that was in 2007, and a small kind of academic press called uh, Scarif Press took that on for me, I'm grateful to say. And, uh, that's kind of based on my own life's, life story because the, the narrator of that, that book was a rocker. He was a rocker in Portland. Right. And, uh, uh, and it's a sort of, his brother figures, uh, looms large in the book. My brother looms large in my life. And it's a kind of Catholic coming of age, uh, book with a, with a, a, a love affair with a Catholic girl who kind of brings that narrator uh, out of his rock and roll enclave into uh, the life of, of of the sacraments and, and a life of a broader understanding. So I, I went from there. I wrote one more rock and roll book, which is uh, the first of two I had with Wise Blood Books. Some of our listeners might have heard of Wise Blood Books. And uh, oh yeah, uh, the they're an excellent,
0: one, press. excellent yeah,
1: press. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the first one was uh, called. The Oracles Fell Silent, that's uh, about a, an aging rocker who's having a kind of uh, Binks Bowling existential crisis. And the, uh, that was 2014, 2017, you get The Oracles Fell Silent, which is set in Portland, Oregon, about the Portland art scene. All the writing is kind of, uh, you know, ends at being comedic. That's what I try to do. As Dickens says, brighten it, brighten it. And, uh, and then this last one, some guys I know approached me about publishing the book with them. They wanted to start a press, and, uh, they did so. They started up a, uh, an LLC, and they're going to put out other books, but Wonderful. mine was the introductory, uh, or the title. Right. And so that's Senex express in there in Boston.
0: Wonderful. And, uh, Lee, uh, we've come to the end of our hour together, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us, but also this great novel, which uh, I know that I will do my best to promote, and I hope that our readers will read it and promote it from the grassroots.
1: I really hope so. Thank you so much, Lee. I really thank appreciate your
0: Thank you, Lee, time and to, uh, thanks everybody for listening, and I'll be back at this time on this day next week.